For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good evening, Bodhisattvas. What a pleasure to be practicing in this wonderful space. (laughs) I'm just bursting with gratitude for everyone that uh, helped to make that happen. I know many uh, many Bodhisattva hours went into uh, making this happen. It's just splendid. Um, So... uh, Oh, that's the little page about the Durrani that we chanted. Um, we can talk about it if you like, but I just want to say that it's an ancient chant to ward off misfortunes, which I thought was really appropriate the night before the election. <laughs> we'll see if, it, if, we, if our powers are uh, with us. Um, I guess I need my glasses. So um, tonight, I thought I would talk a little bit about our uh, Soto Zen forms and uh, ceremonies. Um, Earlier this fall, uh, there was uh, an announcement that this month, the month of November, would be a a practice intensive period. And uh, the... The uh, Tagen wrote in his monthly letter to the Sangha, we would focus on Zen ritual forms and their relationship to Bodhisattva liberating practices. So the um, focus for that intensive uh, arose from a conversation or meeting of the Ancient Dragon Practice Council. You may or may not know we have a practice council. It's made up of practice leaders, priests, or Eno. Uh, and we meet with Tigan uh, periodically um, to discuss matters of practice in our song as they arrive, so irregularly. So at our practice council meeting last summer, a concern came up that, um, oh, that our move away from our Irving Park Zendo to online practice and then transition to hybrid practice uh, at Ebenezer and and Zoom Um, was a lot of change um, and a lot of coming and going of people. Uh, And that it had resulted in us um, losing touch with our forms a little bit, especially newer people who hadn't, um, you know, been immersed in our regular sittings uh, at 1922 Irving Park Road. So uh, one person said, and I don't remember who it was, we need to get back to basics. So I'm going to explain what I mean by forms uh, in a minute, but tonight's talk was originally scheduled to be part of that practice intensive. Um, and Tygen uh, gave me the option to change my uh, my talk, but uh, I figured I'd just plow ahead. Uh, the practice intensive period was canceled, or maybe more appropriately, actually, it was postponed, uh, mostly because we had this 
opportunity that we knew we would have to um, uh, spend a lot of time doing, give our full attention to moving this month. But Tygen also said that um, very few people had signed up. So I wondered whether there was interest in this topic or understanding of uh, this important part of our practice. So um, I thought I'd um, talk about forms. I've been using the word forms, which uh, we don't use that word all that much, but and may or may not be familiar to you, but it, it, it just means the very specific way that, that we do things. So it includes uh, when and how we bow, um, how we uh, announce the beginning of a period of zazen with Han that the greeter does, uh, how we walk during kinghin, how we hold our hands when we're sitting, when we're walking, how we treat our cushions and our chant books, and on and on. Um, and having this new meditation space really feels like an opportunity to refresh our attention to this aspect of our Soto Zen practice. I, I for one, feel a little rusty. <laughs> uh, and um, I've missed that feeling of real harmony that, that comes when we're really paying attention to the forms and everything's working. So we just performed the service together. Uh, and it followed very specific forms that we've all learned or we're learning. We chanted, we bowed, incense was lit, bells were rung. We, we did it together. We made that service together. Uh, we have forms when we clean the zendo. Um, we have a work period that includes chanting and bowing and lighting incense. I always notice that when I'm um, participating in a work period here, I feel very differently about cleaning than when I'm cleaning at home. Um, I think that's because of our forms. So our forms also include rituals and ceremonies like the Sagaki ceremony that we had last weekend, um, honoring people and other beings that have uh, passed on. And uh, that particular ceremony, I would say um, much of the power of that ceremony is beyond the realm of rational experience. Um, Hagen explained it, of course. Um, but for me, you know, I feel like we're connecting with parts of our, our brain and our heart, maybe, by chanting these ancient incantations and I love the part where we make a lot of noise uh, so so things happen in the ceremony that are you clearly can't explain um, but um, I'll speak for myself I'm I'm drawn to it um, and I'm drawn to chanting the Durrani that we chant tonight, even though the syllables may not mean anything to you. I mean, they, I could read you a translation of them, but I, it's uh, that is really not the point of it. the point. It's it's an ex, it's experiential. 
Last week, a poetry teacher said to me, or not just to me, but to the class, uh, she said, uh, our unconscious is smarter than our conscious. I thought that was really good. Um, So, and then during meditation retreats, some of you have been part of those, some some not, but we have very specific forms um, on our meal times. And we, we focus our attention on how we relate to our food, how we relate to the preparers and the servers of that food, how we relate to the origin of all food, the sun and plants and animals and so many sentient beings. And um, it transforms how we relate to eating uh, in our lives. Uh, outside of a retreat situation, environmentally, ethically, our choices that we make. So in these uh, somewhat revolutionary new times of hybrid practice, we're um, creating new forms uh, for our online practitioners. Uh, They're intended, like all our forms, to support this kind of practice and unite the two worlds of the Zendo and cyberspace as much as we can. It seems like very important work to me. I I think it's a work in progress, but I'm so glad that we're doing it. Um, um, So there's much more to forms that's way beyond the scope of this talk. Sewing our garments, our titles, names, ordination. You can spend a lifetime studying these things, but... Um, My hope is that talking about the forms tonight will raise awareness in all of us of what's happening in the Zendo and help us create a harmonious practice together. So I first encountered forms many years ago um, in an Aikido class. So so I confess... um, I was a little baffled by all these instructions we received of exactly how to put our shoes in the entryway when we took them off and exactly how and when to approach the practice mat and how to bow and so on. I I was there to learn a martial art. What exactly did that have to do with how I handled the broom when we swept up afterwards. And what was the big deal about sweeping the floor after practice anyway? So gradually, um, I understood that all these small and large rituals, um, like how we folded our clothes, these were themselves an important part of the practice of Aikido. And that all the students and the teachers participated in it. They, they weren't just like uh, chores for initiation for new students and do the dirty work. So it was a it was an important part of our training to learn to be intentional and to pay attention. And uh, it created an atmosphere of respect and um, I would say even reverence uh, for the dojo, the, the practice hall and for the practice, and for the other students. But no one ever explained that. Uh, each student was 
had to discover it by doing it and then feeling it happen in herself. So that was powerful. It, it was it was like an awakening. Um, then it happened over time. So new people to Ancient Dragon, I, we asked them to attend an orientation. It's short, 15 minutes, maybe half an hour. Um, and so we just want them to know what to expect and how to generally conduct themselves uh, during the sitting so they'll get the most out of it and they won't disrupt others in their practice. And when I do this orientation, uh, I usually end it by uh, telling people just to pay attention to what everyone else is doing and follow along and not to worry about making mistakes. So the forms help us to, to pay attention to what we're experiencing. And I think we all know there's no better way to learn than to make a mistake. It's memorable, especially if others notice. <laughs> um, and uh, so forms and rituals and ceremony, not unique to Soto Zen, all cultures uh, rely on, on rituals, but our country, you know, we don't have a lot of rituals that everyone in the U.S. in the 21st century. Um, one, one new ritual that I'm starting to notice emerge in our culture is making coffee. <laughs> People have elaborate, they, they, they make places in their home and they have exactly the way to do it and exactly the way to grind it and serve it. And uh, So, you know, watching them fuss about this sometimes uh, reminds me, you can get attached to forms, <laughs> maybe not always a good thing. I grew up uh, in a Unitarian church in uh, Northeastern Ohio. And we focused on things that were intellectual and political. And they're kind of stingy when it came to ceremony. I've always thought that uh, this early deprivation made me extra responsive to beautiful forms. I was like, really like this. I liked it when we visited other churches. That was a nice thing we did in terms of visited other churches. So, um, Recently, the botanist Robin Kimmerer, who's been a hero of mine for a long time, has quoted uh, her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, quite a bit here. But she describes ceremonies um, of her culture, the Potawatomi, collecting, braiding, and offering uh, sweetgrass, which is a grass, Hyrochloe odorata, vanilla grass sometimes it's called here. It grows in our prairies, uh, right in the forest preserves here. Lovely. It's a, a little fragrant grass that flowers in the springtime. And um, she says the value of these forms is connecting humans with the rest of nature by helping us to pay attention to plants in a reverent way. Um, she, her books have a way of linking academic science with indigenous knowledge in a way that's respectful of both of them, doesn't diminish either of them, but, but challenges them. So she sees the limitations of Western science as uh, using language that objectifies everything that's not human. Yeah. You're human or you're it. <laughs> uh, so, but she also says... 
Um, uh, resistance to ceremony. Western science resists ceremony. So I think we have we have grown up, we've come up in the culture of objectifying the re- everything non-human and resisting ceremony. So uh, she says that the elders in her cult- culture teach that ceremonies help us to remember to remember. So most of us here probably had the experience of being in a zendo when everything feels right, feels perfect. It's quiet. The incense permeates the air that we're breathing. We relax into our zazen and then just let the bells guide us into samadhi. So I guess the most important point I want to make is that our sangha, our practice community, arises from and is supported by the container that the forms create. Um, Sincere practice with others in the way we did it tonight with all of us um, establishes intimacy and intimacy creates community. So it's a different experience from sitting uh, Zazen at home alone, which is another practice that I um, treasure, but that, but it's different. I treasure it for different reasons. So um, I try to understand some people's resistance to forms. Uh, in our Irving Park Sendo, one of our forms was to not cross in front of the altar, but instead to walk behind it. And this was not intuitive. And many people made the mistake of walking in front of the altar. And when uh, it was, uh, when I was had the job of Eno, it was my job to help people learn the forms and help them follow the forms. And um, I found so much resistance <laughs> to asking, no matter how much I smiled or was uh, encouraging, I just found so much resistance to people that just didn't like doing that or being asked to do that. And I just sat with that so many evenings <laughs> in Irving Park uh, after being you know, scowled at by people. So if you have resistance to forms, and many people do at different times and different reasons, I think it's a good thing to think about. That's can of worms. Because um, the forms aren't sacred in themselves. I, I, I would describe them as empty. Uh, and some of them are arbitrary. Um, on Saturday, when we were moving in here, um, Tygen and Kogetsu and Asian and others had to rethink some of our forms to fit into this specific place. place. And Tygen said, well, traditionally, the altar should be in the center of the room. And we moved things around and tried to make that work. And you know, where would the people online be? And could the Doan see the altar? And many questions. And we eventually decided we wouldn't do it that way. And you could see where the altar is. It's there against the window. So we we all agreed you have to be flexible and adapt 
as we learn what is most harmonious in this space. So the forms themselves are not, you know, sacred forms handed down by something or someone. Um, but um, we will uh, we will make them together. We will create them, and then they will help us. But um, they don't just magically actualize. So uh, it takes many beings to make the forms work. So one opportunity available to practitioners here is to learn the roles of being a, a leader, um, someone who helps us with the forms during during um, sittings like tonight, during session, during ceremonies, and so forth. So tonight we had a doan, timing the sitting, ringing the bells, caring for the altar. Uh, Sophia, our intern from U of C, it's her first time being doan. Congratulations, mm -hmm. you did a wonderful job. We had a kokyo leading the chant. We had a mokukyo player playing the drum. We had a person... Um, helping the people on Zoom participate. Um, and uh, Jerry's been our Eno now for several months. And the Eno is in charge of helping people learn to participate in these forms. Um, and she will be leading training sessions uh, in the upcoming weeks. First, for people who want to um, learn our forms um, more and maybe brush up if you if you feel a little rusty. Uh, and she'll, I think, have some comments maybe during the discussion time. Uh, but I would recommend uh, you consider whether you would like to be part of this important group. Um, and um, I can pretty much guarantee that it would be challenging and would also be rewarding. But you will also become more intimate, more intimate with the altar, more intimate with the service, more intimate with the other doans. Um, um, I think that learning respect in the zendo through this physical enactment of bowing and paying close attention to these details transfers to um, our acting with respect in the wider world. So I'm going to end with a story that I've told many times. So I apologize to those of you that have heard me tell this story, but I still like this story. So 10 or more years ago, when we had our first intern from the UFC Divinity School, I was showing him uh, how to prepare and serve tea uh, and treats after our service. And so I asked him to put the cookies on the plate. And uh, he took the bag and dumped them out. And I said, um, sort of said, well, maybe you could arrange them nicely. And he asked why. So I was trying not to be too you know, heavy-handed. So I just said it'd be more pleasing to our guests if they were presented in a nice way. And he's a really nice man, and he didn't complain. And, you know, 22-year-old guy, what did he know about serving cookies? So uh, so uh, he, he, after that, he always 
arranged the cookies nicely and, and I kind of forgot about it. And then many months later, at the end of his internship, uh, we were, we go and we interview with a supervisor and talk about how it went and what was good and you know what could be improved. And she asked, uh, what was the most important thing you learned in your internship? And he said, I learned it's important to arrange cookies nicely on the plate. <laughs> and of course, I was kind of shocked and thought he was being sarcastic, but I think that was the first time he had really thought about paying attention to that kind of thing. And that just like me with Aikido, you know, he gradually by doing it, he understood it by by doing it and that it was the most important thing because it opened up his understanding of the way we do Soto Zen. So um, anyway, um, Suzuki Roshi said, rituals are more than just training. Through rituals, we communicate and transmit the teaching in a true sense. We put emphasis on selflessness. When we practice together, we forget our own practice. It's each individual's practice, and it's also others' practice. So uh, thank you very much. And um, I would offer the first question to our, you know, Terry, I mean, the first comment. <laughs> we are... Um I am thinking about training, and I um, was thinking maybe we could use the Thursday evening Zazen sessions where we used to have 30 minutes of Zazen and the discussion of the Suzuki uh, um, book, Beginner's Mind, which we haven't had for a while, mostly because the attendance hasn't, nobody's coming, basically. And so the idea would be to have regular training over a few weeks and to look at just not go on training or Kokio training, but to look at basic sitting positions, bowing, when to bow, how to bow, when you bow when people come in and out of the room near you, uh, the, the Han um, chanting, the techno job, and to do it sort of on a regular basis partly to develop the skill and, 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 and know how to, to do the form properly, but also the hope is to develop a sense of not so much an individual form, but a general sense of more awareness when you're in the Zen center of what goes on around you, to, to, to be aware of the other people, to see how the other people perform the forms, and to foster a better, a, a stronger sense of sangha and community that way. So I'm, we're st I'm still working out the details of how that would be. Um, and I was thinking we could incorporate some of the forms if you're online, like you probably wouldn't be a, a doan or a kokio. But teaming can be done remotely in your place bowing can be done. There are some forms. So some of them might be hybrid. So we would have to work out what you know which how which form which forms would be hybrid and if we wanted to all 
of the sessions hybrid or just some hybrid and some just in person. And then if we were going to do hybrid, where we would have to run through where we'd put the cameras and position it so people could see the form and not just see legs or just heads or <laughs> in the session. So the details are still being worked out, so more to come, but that's sort of where the thinking is going at this point. If anybody has any questions or comments or ideas about that, I would love to hear them. That sounds like it might be something that would be important to potentially record as a video so that we could have video recording. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. And then, you know, I, I imagine that going through this over time, we might um, work with each of the forms more than once, but then, you know, we could draw from, from that to decide, you know, what would be a great video library about practice. Yes. The other thing that I was thinking, if we have a whole Thursday evening Zazen period, and we did 30 minutes of Zazen and then some training, Song training like Doan and Kokyo would take up 45 minutes, then fill out the evening. Some, like Kinheen or Han, might take up less time, but we could also add in, I was thinking we could do some readings from Rob Anderson's book, uh, Sitting Upright, and maybe have some discussion to talk about forms and how they fit in and how people think it's going and how people are relating to the form. So we could incorporate various things in the training besides just the uh, practicing the forms. So just to be clear, you're if I I want to be sure I understand you correctly, this is not just for newcomers and beginners. This is for all of us to be sure we all understand the forms the same way and that we're um, uh, practicing them well together. Yes. I, this would be for everyone. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Not just newcomers. And maybe we go a month and see where we are. You know, with different weeks, we we focus on a different set of forms or, and then see where, how that works and where we are. So all of this will be announced. Yeah, I'm still working out the details of what, what yes, yes, all of this will be announced. Right? <laughs> Better plan, yes. I'm looking to see if there are comments from people online. How do they let us know? Uh, they will either raise their hand or uh, digitally or in with their own hand. One of those are And I can keep an eye on that here. Like Brent has his hand up. Uh, first of all, congratulations on the new space. I have not been there physically yet, but online it seems acoustically excellent and uh, spatially so as well. Um, very beneficial. Uh, and thank you for your talk. Um, I think it's crucially important uh, to be reminded, um, I know for me, uh, of the importance of forms. And in the ways that you brought them out, 
uh, and it reminds me of something that a uh, former or a, someone I know who was a, a former teacher of mine pointed out uh, the importance of the ethical component of the Eightfold Path in light of uh, the emptiness or selflessness of things, uh, because without being long-winded, uh, with no ego, with no, with no essential core to ourselves, if we are really just conditioned beings or processes within processes, then at the end of the day, what we are left with is either civility or incivility or respect or non-respect or conscious awareness or unconscious behavior. Uh, you know, so our behaviors uh, really create the conditions of our world. And so the forms in the Zendo, I think, are a microcosm of that, uh, illuminating the importance of, you know, the bowing isn't just uh, meaningful within the Zen tradition in its own way, but it's, it's actualizing a value that is something that's important in the world, you know, an ethical value. Um, you know, the cleaning of the Zendo, the attention to all the details, all these things are very positive qualities that the world and we all, I would say, need. So highlighting that is excellent. And thank you very much. Sophia, how was it being going <laughs> <laughs> it went better than I thought it would. <laughs> I think I, I got more comfortable over time. That always happens when you're really doing something. So. But it was, I mean, it's its really gratifying to feel close to the ceremony. Um, I'm definitely really grateful for that and excited to become more in tune with, with these beings. Um, I, I was interested in the quote from Craig Sweetgrass, where I forget the author's name. Robin Kimmerer. Robin Kimmerer uh, implies that the science doesn't have traditions or forms, or uh, that was not the word she used, rituals. Um, like those things are in, in opposition somehow. Because you, so you gave us the, scientific name of sweetgrass yeah and how did it get that name right because 250 years ago Linnaeus decided that there had to be a specific form that names had to be published in such a way and to, to me that feels like a form in science you know perhaps it functions differently than service here but I, I just thought that was interesting so thank you. And I'm apologizing to Dr. Kimmerer. She is an academic. She has a PhD in botany and, and teaches at the university. Um, and I'm, I uh, mistakenly or uh, unintentionally misrepresented her. She, she has great respect for academia. But the things that she sees that it's sort of the weak spots <laughs> that she's experienced anyway, is that were the two things I mentioned, which is that they're the objectifying of non-human um, beings, 
with language that's beyond academic living all that's really culturally in many languages and uh and the um What word? I don't remember the words that she used, but she, she, her experience being in academia and being in the indigenous community is that the academics don't put a value on um, ritual enough from her point of view. Don't see in that value. So that's her perspective. I think she's well. What is an academic ritual? I suppose um, getting your PhD and having, I mean, there are a lot of rituals. Right? Well, <laughs> your business. Yeah. yeah, right, exactly. And I think, I think there may be more rituals than academics might realize, like the whole process of writing yeah. a description of a new species and getting it translated into Latin and then submitting it to a peer-reviewed journal, then coming back with yeah. revisions, like all, all of that. getting your footnotes, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, citation, citation formats, MLA, all of that, like that, all of that is ritual. It's just not contextualized right. that way. But, but I think, yeah, she's absolutely making a correct point. The purpose of academia is to analyze stuff, right? And analysis comes from the root word meaning to take apart and separate things into discrete units, which is to look at them individually um, and not not holistically the way that sin is is more holistic, right? That's our challenge is to think more holistically. And her intention is to try to link those worlds in a way that's beneficial to both. Yeah, they both um, have strengths for and, sure. Yes, and so her books, I mean, I mean, the first book I ever uh, knew about of hers um, was about moss. And mm. you don't usually buy books about moss if you're not a <laughs> moss scientist or a botanist, <laughs> but it, was, it sold a lot of books because... It was an original worldview that she was in. She's a good writer. So, and then Sweetgrass was <laughs> even more obscure plant. Uh, so, uh, anyway, she just got a MacArthur uh, okay. uh, award this year. She was in this year's cohort, a, a little belatedly. They should have given it to her 10 years ago when she really needed the money. <laughs> now, I'm glad she got it, the recognition. Anyway, thank you for bringing her up. I should be more careful when I quote people. Anyway, I just wanted to build on one point that Wade made. He said that academia has more rituals than it realizes. And I think that's part of the value of ritual and forms. And so we have these rituals and forms in lots of ways in, in, in Zendo and in Zen schedules. But it helps us to realize the other unconscious rituals, mm-hmm. like writing, putting in footnotes or whatever <laughs> that we that we all do in whatever context we're doing it. So to be more, so it, it helps us to be more. I mean, that's how it help, one way it helps us to be more conscious and intentional. Mm-hmm. I've written lots of footnotes in my life, and I <laughs> never once would have considered them a ritual until I started Zen practice. <laughs> <laughs> right. Interesting. That's interesting. 
one thing though that I see being in academia right now and being taught to be grammatically correct and, and everything, um, and everything, uh, um, I see where I get lost inappropriately with forms in a zendo when I try to get them right. And I think what's the important thing about forms, and it's just an observation, not necessarily a critique of science, but science is trying to make everything uniform so everybody understands it. The forms in the zendo, I think, and the forms of indigenous people are about connection. It's not about uniformity and a common baseline for everybody, but a sense of connection. And something Tygen said yesterday about chanting with our ears, that all of a sudden just opened a whole new world for me, because it made sense about connection. And that's what the forms are for. The forms are to help us connect to a practice, to help us to connect to one another, and to have a sense of a bonding. Not that I try to get the form, like I'm looking tonight, to, sometimes when we're bowing, do I have my hands in, in you know, in, in prayer position, or do I have my hands, you know, in a, next to my chest? You know, I'm, I'm looking at Douglas and Tiger to make sure I'm got my hands in the right position. Uh, but that's, in a sense, losing myself rather than connecting. And the whole purpose of them is to connect. And that's why I think we're so important about that, is that we give up ourselves and connect to something other than ourselves. And that's what I think is an important part of forms. Yeah, I mean, it's like when you first learn to ride a bike, right? It's like, what do you do? You push down, then you push down, then you do this, and this, and then you fall over. But once you learn how to ride a bike, you're just, you're just sailing. And it's, but you have to go through that clumpy part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think... <clears throat> I think um, several people have made a point that captures a lot of what I appreciate about the forms. I mean, there are various levels in which the forms work. There's the most really practical version is it preserves order so we're just not flailing around as a mob when we're in the Zendo. And there's sort of a conventional utilitarian or instrumental sense, partly that. Um, partly in the case of the service, by chanting, we generate merit, we dedicate it to people, that sort of thing. And there's a training aspect too, and Asian spoke a lot about that yesterday, that to perform these forms in a certain way, doing things in certain ways demands that you pay a certain amount of attention and be here, and to connect it to the paramitas. Um, forms are, in a sense, they are partly a constraint, and one, one of the many translations of, of Shanti Paramita is not just patience, but it's tolerance, endurance, constraint, restraint. In the experience of saying, I'm going to do it this way. I'm not, I'm going to sit up straight. I'm not going to slump. What does that do? We have, we learn to deal with what comes up when we impose those constraints. But more along the lines of, um, I think what Jerry and David said, just moving in this space, being aware of the space, um, 
being aware of how we're moving in the space and using the space and we're interacting with other people in the same way, in a harmonious manner, takes us out of our sense of being this independent, separate person. And we, this room and the people in it become one practice body. And that's an important part of our, at least Soto practice. I, I can't speak to Rinza practice, but it's an important part of Soto practice. Being here in this, as part of this, as part of this practice body. And it's, it's not that it's, and in that extent, it's an expression of our practice, ourselves as practice body, not training in how to become practice body. Anyway. I, that, that, thank you. That's exactly what I was trying to say. And it is well, thank you. You said it very well. I think we have a pretty good level of forms. I know that there's a series, great series of books about the practice of Chinese Buddhism before before and immediately after the Chinese Revolution by Holmes Welch, who was an anthropologist at Harvard. <clears throat> and he interviewed the Eno, it's not what he was called, but he, the Eno from the most prestigious, large Chinese monastery in China, the Qinshan School. And the Eno told him that because of the level of formality in their education, it took six years to be <laughs> able to become Eno at Qinshan <laughs> Um, that seems excessive. <laughs> right, but it had value from the first t- moment it started. Yeah, yeah. It, it's not like it was six years before it was anything. I mean, right. it was- and, um, and Holmes Welch writes about watching the monitors moving around the Zendo during meditation periods and so on, and they were clearly right there, they were, it was practice. Mm-hmm. We have time for maybe one or two more comments. So a shout out to Mina, congratulations on a new book. Is it, when is it gonna be available in our local bookstore? Um, thank you so much. Uh, it, sh- it came out. It should be available. I think my publisher told me that maybe it's going to be part of this subscription thing at Seminary Co-op Bookstore there in Chicago. Um, but yeah, it should be in bookstores now. Thank you. I mean, please say the title of the book and something about it. Um, it's called A Horse at Night on Writing. And um, it is about writing, reading, and life, you know, just living. And um, I do talk about my practice a little bit, my Zazen practice, or um, I, I, I'm a little nervous, actually, for any of you to read it for that reason, because, <laughs> you know, like the way the way I write about it. But um, it, yeah, it, it, I wasn't really expecting my life to come into it as much as it kind of did. But um and it it also I mean it's it's writing reading but also um, I also write about art a little bit in it and you know just the different things in my life that that kind of um, drive my writing you know drive drive my writing life. I had the opportunity to 
here, I mean, to speak about it last week. And uh, yeah, it's real, it was really lovely and really helpful. Thank you. Well, thank you for a wonderful talk. It really was, gave me a lot to think about. Um, but my parking is going to expire, <laughs> and so am I. So let's chant the four. I'm going to have to go. <laughs>